Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. As we continue in our series, God and Government, Pastor Roy will talk about law and order. As we look at the role of government and society, we must go back to Scripture to see what it says. Today, Pastor Roy will look at those scriptures and help us understand what the role of government should be. When we know the biblical role of government, then we can better vote for those candidates who are as close as possible to those principles. Here is Pastor Roy. Continue our series on God and government, and uh, these are not easy topics. And um, I have, uh, in my research, I came across a book that I am using that I used uh, even last week and this week, um, and I want to mention it. Um, It's called Politics According to the Bible. It was published in 2010 by Wayne Grudem, who is a a theologian, and he takes the different issues uh, in our society that government tackles, and that's why I I wanted to use that. Um, I'm going to do a little review uh, from last week. Uh, We talked about a biblical worldview, and of course, the foundation of government has to be a biblical worldview and that's why we're having so much problems in our government is because they have walked away from many biblical moral truths and I mentioned uh, last week uh, the colsoncenter.org mentioned what a worldview is that a worldview is the framework of basic beliefs that we hold whether we realize it or not that shapes our view of and for the world. Everyone has a worldview. The question is, which one do they hold? Everyone has one. And how a society approaches politics and government will largely be determined by that society's worldview. That's why I'm coming back to it, because it is the foundation. And I just want to, I'm not going to be able to share everything I shared last week. So those of you that did not hear the message, it should be on our uh, website. Uh, Go out and look at it, listen to it. Um, because I think it'll be an encouragement to you. But here's some of the things we talked about. A biblical worldview is biblically grounded. Now, that sounds pretty basic, but it comes from the Bible, not from man, not from somebody else. Uh, It comes from the Bible. Secondly, a biblical worldview is defined by hope. Peter said that everyone should be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. A reason. And it comes from the hope that is in Jesus Christ. It is hope in, not for. It is hope in Christ. Because he is the redeemer, he's the sustainer, and he's the creator of the world. Thirdly, a biblical worldview begins with creation. And what do we talk about? How many school systems are not even allowed to teach creation. Why? Because the government has brought principles to bear and policies to say they can't do it. Uh, But yet Jim uh, reminded me that some schools are still able to do it because of their district. Uh, But many are not able to. Um, It's against um, government. A biblical worldview has to include moral evil or sin. It has to include moral evil or sin, which means there's moral absolutes. You know, murder is wrong. Uh, most, I have yet to meet one person that tells me murder is okay. 
But then we move into other areas when we talk about moral issues and they say, well, you can't bring that into bear because that's a moral issue. Like we talked about abortion being a moral issue. Uh, but it's also murder. And so we go back to the biblical principle that we are not to kill. And, but somehow in the womb, we've changed that and said, well, it's okay. But yet there's many scriptures that tell us about babies leaping in the womb and called a baby. Elizabeth, when she was pregnant, it says the baby leaped within her womb. Well, baby, it's, it's life. It's human. And so we can't uh, get away from that. All human beings are born with a sin nature. We have a sin nature. It's very evident. And the Bible says that we're conceived in sin. Human beings are responsible then for our actions. We will be standing before the eternal judge one day, whether we think we will or not. We will give an account of what we've done. And then God created human beings, male and female. We talked about the whole transgender thing and how there's gender identity issues in our world. All they need to do is go to the scripture. The scripture tells us there are two, male and female. We're not evolving and there's not all these different identities. It's very clear in scripture. But when we get away from scripture, everything becomes cloudy. So we've got to go back to what the scripture says. And then the earth is under a curse because of sin. And so these are some things that we talked about last week. For this week, the British statesman and parliamentarian from the 18th century, Edmund Burke, once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men should do nothing. I hear about a lot of people with this election upcoming that says, well, with conscience, I'm not going to vote. Uh, all that has to happen for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Say, well, I'm just, I'm just sitting this one out. I don't think Christians can sit on the sideline and really fulfill our civic duty and our God-given responsibility to vote and to vote intelligently. And that's why when we talk about God created male and female, which candidate supports that idea. Which candidate supports the idea of traditional marriage between one man and one woman? Which uh, candidate supports pro-life? These are the issues we need to look at because these are the issues that will affect us in the future. And we're going to talk about some more in a moment. Romans 13 is what we're going to start off with. Uh, if you'd like to turn your Bibles there, Romans chapter 13. Paul is writing to the Romans and he says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now let me say at the outset, there are some corrupt governments in our world. There is no doubt about that. Paul is not addressing those kind of issues where there's a totally dysfunctional or a dictatorship or something like that. He is talking about a normal government situation under, under a normal situation um, that we are responsible to submit to that government. If the government asks us to do something contrary to the Bible, then we do not need to submit to that because it says we ought to obey God rather than man. 
It tells us that in the book of Acts, and that's exactly what the disciples did when they were told they needed to listen to the authorities. So here's the first principle we need to consider, that God is the supreme authority in the world. He is above every other authority. Here's what he says in Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God is far above all rule and all authority, no matter who it is or where and when. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's above every governmental authority. He's above every political authority. He's above every judicial authority. God is the supreme authority. However, there'll be something that impacts that when we consider authority. The Roman authorities were to be obeyed. Rome was not necessarily a godly government. They didn't do everything right, and yet Paul is telling them they need to submit to the authority. Paul wanted the believers in Rome to understand that in the Roman Empire, According to Psalm 75, 6 and 7, no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man. But it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. Remember, we talked about the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wants to. God is the supreme authority in the world. But when we go back to the Roman authority... Who were some of the Roman authorities during Paul's writing? Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. These Roman emperors who were not necessarily kind to Christians. And yet Paul is telling them they need to submit to the authority unless they're told to do something that God has not authorized. God has given them permission to be in that position is what Paul is saying. So here's the second point. The state's authority is delegated authority. They don't have absolute authority. It has been delegated to them by God and can be taken away from them by God as well. Notice what he says at the second part of verse 1. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. God. So therefore, that authority that they have has been delegated authority, and they will be accountable for how they handle their authority and their government. We are to submit in the context of love. Notice if you go back to Romans 12, 9, love must be sincere. Um, he tells us in Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. So in the context of love is how we are to submit. It tells us that. The state's authority is delegated authority. Here's a couple of verses. Daniel 2:21 says, God sets up kings and deposes them. In Daniel chapter 4, 
Uh, we read about Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. He brings in his magicians and wise men and they can't solve the dream. He calls for Daniel. Daniel tells him what the dream is going to be. And what is told? The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. The supreme authority, it is delegated authority because God gives it to them. Yet they will be accountable for it. So Nebuchadnezzar's authority was delegated. Pharaoh's authority to lead Egypt was delegated authority. He did not have absolute authority. It was delegated. So here's the danger is when we have political authority that rebels against God's authority. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people go to Samuel and they say, you know what? You're old. You have one foot in the grave and the other one on a banana peel. <laughs> You're about to die. Your sons you have appointed as judges are evil. We need a king. We want a king. We want somebody to reign over us, somebody to rule. We want to be like all the other nations. Now, they were a theocracy. They were originally under God. But they said, we want a king. So Samuel was grieved. But he goes and he talks to the Lord about it. And the Lord says, hey, give him what he wants. Give the people what they want. And the people clamor for a king. What kind of king did they get? They got a king, a ruler who wanted to take. Take, take, take. That's what can happen when you have a corrupt government and they come in and they begin to seize possessions and control of things. Let's look at the passage in 1 Samuel 8 and you'll see what I mean. 1 Samuel 8, 11. This is what the king who will reign over you will do, Samuel says. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, others to plow his grain, reap his harvest, to others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. They're going to work hard. He's going to have them do lots of different things. Look, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Do you see what he's doing? Take, 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 take. Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Here's what Samuel tells them the king is going to do. We have been listening to a lot of garbage <laughs> over you know, the last several months between a couple candidates. And yet we know that some are there to take and others are to uphold the law and try to obey the Constitution. Others want to rewrite the Constitution. We need to pay attention to that and listen but here's the sad words, the next words in the scripture, in this passage, says this. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. Yes, he is the supreme authority, but he's given us the power to choose. The reason we are in the mess we are in today is because many Christians did not vote several years ago. 
They did not vote. But here's what it says. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. And that's the way God operates when people are absolutely compelled to disregard his law. And that's what we have so much in our government today. One reason why communism is so dehumanizing is that when private property is abolished, government controls all economic activity. And what have we seen our government do? In 2010, Congress passed legislation that gives the federal government significant control of the nation's health care system, which comprises 17.6% of the nation's gross domestic product. In essence, we are giving control and the government is taking, taking and taking. And whenever you have a government that takes, we're going to be oppressed. They want to take our religious freedom. They want to take decisions away from us. I don't want to get ahead of myself. There's some other things I want to share. But taking, rather than allowing individuals to own property and to own things, is what God intends. In 1 Kings 21, there was a vineyard that was stolen from Naboth, the Jezreelite by Ahab, the wicked king, and his even more wicked queen. And they wanted to take control and more and more control of the property of a nation that God intends to be owned and controlled by private individuals. And what do we see? Regulation after regulation after regulation. I don't have time to share with you about other countries who have to walk through more hoops than you can imagine. It takes years to get things passed through the government. We are blessed so far in this land. We really are. But we have got to stand up and be a voice for righteousness. We have to be counted on in the polls. We absolutely have to. Here's the third thing. Governments significantly influence people's moral convictions and behavior in the moral fabric of a nation. You don't believe that? When they legalized marijuana in Colorado, they encouraged people to use marijuana. And when you legalize something, people tend to think it's morally okay because it's been legalized by the government. And it's not morally okay. And that's what happens in government. Here, Psalm 94:20. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, one that brings on misery by its decrees? See, some governments can pass laws that enable wrongdoing. Isaiah 10:1. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. Isaiah says. In Psalm 125, verse 3, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Because the government influences society. Why are there so many abortions? Because the government has come in and said it's okay. They've encouraged murder. Now again, I said, you know, if you have had an abortion, God forgives. And he gives grace for that. And I'm so glad that he does. 
The purpose of government is to uphold the law. Government influences society because laws have a teaching function. They teach people about what's right and wrong. In addition to what the government considers legal or illegal affects what is taught in schools to the children in that society. Notice if we go down to verse 4, he talks about government is God's servant. It's an interesting use of words, servant. It's the idea of waiting on tables, serving. They are to serve the people to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. So here the idea is even capital punishment is encouraged in the Bible. That if someone takes a life, they should lose their life. That's what the scripture teaches. Remember Noah and his family went in the ark and the flood came. After the flood dissipated and, the, and Noah and his family came out of the ark, what did God institute for the people for a new society? Here's what he says in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds his blood, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. And why does God put such a harsh penalty on that is because someone is taking the life of God's representative who looks like him. Think about that. We are the only ones, the only creatures made in the image of God. And God places such a high value on that as his representatives made in his image. And we destroy his image when we take life. The verb shed here means to pour out in a large amount causing death. So this violent shedding of blood is unjustified in taking life. He goes on to say he does not bear the sword for nothing because he's saying he has penal authority to make those decisions. Just quickly in Numbers chapter 35, beginning in verse 16, here's this whole idea of capital uh, punishment. If a man strikes someone with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. If anyone has a stone in his hand that could kill and he strikes someone so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if anyone has a wooden object in his hand that could kill and he hits some, some, someone so that he dies, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. He doesn't do it himself in revenge. He turns it over to the civil government. And the government is to carry that out. That's the delegated authority that God has given to the government. Notice uh, in Romans 12, 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice it says, leave room for God's wrath. Now look at Romans 13. For he is God's servant and agent of wrath. He's carrying out the wrath of God when he performs the capital punishment. It doesn't mean that you can't forgive and pray that they'll come to Christ. But what he has done is he deserves death. Number four, the primary role of judges is to judge according to a law external to themselves. I talked about this a little bit last week. All the government officials in Israel were subject to an external law, and that law was the law of God. Moses gave God's commands, and here's what he said. Whoever becomes king in Israel was required, listen, it was a requirement of the king in his position to write for himself in a book a copy of this law. In other words, he was to take the law of Moses, the law of God, and he was to write it down and record that every day. He was to do that. He was to record it. He shall read in it, the Bible says, all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. He was subject to the law of God. And now we have a challenge because David is the greatest king in Israel and he breaks the law. What happens? What's the judgment? Remember with Bathsheba? He broke the law. He committed adultery. And then he wanted to have her husband murdered. And Nathan goes to him and tells him, you're wrong. (laughs) And he tells him the consequence. Here's the idea. The king is not above the law. No person is above the law of God, no matter what position they are in. The president is not above the law. The Supreme Court is not above the law of God. And here's what we have. We have a Supreme Court that is making decisions contrary to the law of God. We also have a couple candidates, and one is promoting activist judges who will be very liberal in their approach, who will uphold Roe versus Wade versus another candidate who wants to kill Roe versus Wade because he's pro-life. And whichever person becomes president will influence this nation for the next 30 or 40 years because there's already one open position and in essence we have four conservative Supreme Court judges and four that are liberal and we have one Anthony Kennedy and it is very clear that he goes back and forth on his voting he is a swing voter so here's what it means We have one person in our country that controls the direction of this country right now on the Supreme Court. One person. Because if it's four and four, however he votes is the direction this country is going. The Supreme Court was never intended to have that kind of power. But it was given to them by the federal government because judges are unelected officials by the people. We do not elect Supreme Court justices. Our government does. And because of the decisions they have made to get activist judges in there, here's what the activist judges say. The Constitution is a living document. 
And therefore, it is open for interpretation, but the problem is they're interpreting it, things into it and reading things into it that were never intended. And we need to have originalist judges in there who will judge based on the original reason and interpretation of the Constitution. Let me give you another verse here. Ezekiel 44, 24. In any dispute, the priests are to serve as judges and decide it according to what? God's ordinances. They are to keep God's laws and God's decrees for all the appointed feasts, and they are to keep his Sabbaths holy. It was according to the law of God that they were to judge. The laws were given and provided the standard by which judges were to judge the law. Judges are not to show partiality or take bribes, for this would be using some other basis for judgment rather than the established law. Listen to this verse in Deuteronomy. He says, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God has given you, and they will judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. Now here's what he says in Exodus. If a man steals an ox or a sheep or sells it, he must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. But here's what a lot of our judges are saying. You shall not steal unless you give the judge a bribe. That's where we're at. January 22, 1973, Roe v. Wade was a 7-2 majority. However, they based their decision on the 14th Amendment, which says this, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property, with due process of law. Where is the right to privacy contained in these words? It's not there. Because this was not written, the 14th Amendment was not written with the idea of abortion. The 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, and here's the primary purpose it was written. To guarantee that slaves and their descendants would have all the rights of citizenship and equal protection to all other citizens under the law. Nothing whatsoever about abortion. And that's what they based their decision on because they reinterpreted and rewrote, in essence, the Constitution. We cannot afford to have activist judges who interpret our Constitution in that way. Because when they do that, they're placing themselves above in essence, the law of the United States, which is the Constitution, which much of it was based on the Word of God. Well, let me give this last one. Inwardly transformed people are necessary for a transformed society. Government cannot save America or any other country. It is going to be transformed people who transform a society. Remember what happened in Acts when the disciples went out and witnessed? They said they're turning the town upside down for Christ. 
they absolutely turn their town around because of their transformed lives. That's what we need in America. That's what we need in our politicians. That's what we need in our Supreme Court justices is inwardly transformed people who are willing to live by the word of God. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. We need to be on our knees in prayer. We need a, we need a miracle in this country. We are in desperate need of a miracle in this country. We need someone who is going to uphold the biblical principles. I see two flawed candidates. I haven't paid attention to the other ones, honestly, or writing something in because that's a wasted vote. But I see two flawed candidates who we can look and we can you know, go over with a fine-tooth comb. There are many, many things I don't like about either one. But I'm looking at the conscience of our nation. I'm looking at the future of your kids and mine and grandkids and saying, what kind of people do I want on the Supreme Court? Because that is the highest authority in the land, and they will direct the, the, this nation. What kind of judges do we want? Because look at the candidates. If you don't know the issues, pick up a decision magazine by Billy Graham's organization. I think it's a September issue. They had many good articles in there and they have a whole listing of the two candidates and their positions on the issues. We don't need to look at the past of what the person has done or not done. I think we need to be more concerned about our future because we can't change the past we can change the future. So God, help us do that. God, encourage you to do it. In conscience, look at the issues and vote for the best candidate that we have. God is the one. And you know what? God raises people up and he puts them down. Look at their running mate. What does their running mate hold? What views does he hold? Because they would be the president if something happened to the president. I mean, I think all those things are crucial because God ultimately is in control. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Covered a lot of ground this morning, but I just feel it's so essential. We have such a crucial, crucial time in our day. Religious freedom is also at stake. And I would say which candidate is going to be most kind toward the Christian community? To me, I think it's clear. And I trust it will be in your, your mind and heart. As we bow with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask you, I did, I did not give a salvation message today. But maybe you're here today and, and you're realizing that as we talk even about government, the Bible speaks to life. It is not an outdated book. It speaks very much to the current issues of our day. We can see that. And I didn't even have time to even hit all the passages. I mean, there are so many. And so many issues. But to bring law and order to our land, it requires us submitting to the authorities, and hopefully these authorities are submitting to God under his law. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, 
Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You were born in sin, separated from God. But a holy God died on the cross that you and I could be reconciled to him. We can't wash away our own sin. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. We will stand before the eternal judge one day and give an account. Your good deeds will not erase your sin either. Only the blood of Christ shed on the cross, the Lamb of God, can take away the sin of the world. If you don't know him as your personal savior, if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, I would be glad to talk with you after the service. If you have other needs in your life that you would like somebody to pray with you, please seek me out, and we'll be glad to pray uh, with you. As I close in prayer this morning, I'm going to have Donnie come up. Uh, Donnie Hofer is the chairman of our elders, and we have an African. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.